So I'm going to pray that God would help us to be able to understand what he says to us in his word, the Bible, this morning. So let me pray, and then let's have a think about it a bit together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, that we might be right with you, that we might become your children, that we might have the hope of eternal life. Thank you for the great joy and privilege of being known and loved by the God who created us. We ask for your help now as we spend this time thinking about the resurrection of your son. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might have heard the statement, I imagine you have many times heard the statement, uh, you only live once. And normally I think that statement is given as a a bit of a reason to live a certain way or to try something bold or new or to make the most of an opportunity or to take some kind of risk. Uh, If you only live once, then you might as well make the most of what you have because it'll all be over soon. Uh, It's a common motto. Let me give you some brief examples. So, for example, on the screen, uh, Heidi Klum says, for me... Life is about enjoying yourself because you only live once. Or uh, Richard Branson, you only live once and I just don't want to waste a minute of my life. Or Joshua Bell, you only live once so I try to say yes to everything. Or the one I like best, John Tomac, don't know who he is but he's clever, you only live once so I'm going to eat chocolate. Um, John loves Easter, I'm sure. Um, Now, can I say, people use that motto, you only live once, to encourage themselves and others to make the most of their lives. Because this is all we have. And we will all be over sooner than you imagine. So make the most of it. You only live once. Can I say, it's a profound statement of hopelessness. Which is sad, because everyone needs hope. In fact, the need for hope is universal. We've even been reminded this morning, as Josh has spoken to us at the beginning, the importance of future expectation has been understood for a long time, and it's destructive when there's an absence of it. The desire that everything would work out well in the end is inherent in the human heart. And as creatures, our ability to have a, a future hope is one of our distinctives as human beings. It's been recognised that one of the things that actually make people different from animals is a sense or a consciousness of the future. And one of the the important things about uh, knowing ourselves to be creatures in time with a, a past, a present and a future is that it actually affects all of our activities. We order our activities in the present by the future. You know, we can see it in almost every daily activity, can't we? So, for example, if you're driving somewhere, let's say you're uh, taking a trip to Canberra, can't imagine why you'd want to do that, but that's your goal. You're going to Canberra, <clears throat> and so you take present steps to, uh, to achieve that. You put, you put petrol in the car. Uh, you consult maps if you don't know the way. They're the kind of things you do. I mean, students are dominated by their future. Every day is influenced by their future goal to graduate. People's present is very much determined by their understanding of the future. And we're all very much in need of hope. The good news is that it's hope that is at the very heart of Easter, of Jesus' resurrection. 
In fact, can I say that to say that you only live once is a statement that Christianity wholeheartedly disagrees with. The statement that Christians can agree with is, you only live twice. Today is Easter Day. Two days ago we celebrated Good Friday, the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus is a celebration, but it's only a celebration because of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and that changes everything. I mean, if Jesus had remained in a tomb, well, big deal. It would have been a profoundly sad event. A deluded but innocent man suffering the most horrific of injustices and torment nailed to a cross. Is, if Christianity is simply Jesus died for your sins, then I have no hope to offer you today. But Christianity is actually a profound message of hope. And it's a message of hope because the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. Now, we read a historical account, or we read a historical account of the event in John's Gospel. But in our passage from 1 Corinthians today, it's about 25 years after the death of Jesus. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in southern Greece. It's a big city with a a church that began with his visit about five years earlier. But some problems had arisen in that church, and Paul is addressing them in this rather lengthy letter. And chapter 15 itself is a long chapter that appears to be all about the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And it is about that. But it's not just about understanding the facts of the resurrection. It's much more about understanding the implications of the resurrection for the way that we live our lives today. And so let's just have a a read of what he says again from verse 1 in chapter 15. Sorry, I've been talking all weekend and my throat is getting a little bit uh, raspy. I apologise. 15 verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." You know, Paul's first point is that the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. Look at what he says about Jesus. Uh, Verse or sentence three there. uh, He died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Verse four, he was buried. That's talking about something that has happened to his body. Verse four again, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, that's also talking something about his that happened to his body. And then in verse five, that he appeared. So there's four verbs there, notice. He died, was buried, was raised, appeared. Or maybe more accurately, two things happened the way the Scriptures said they would. Now, did you notice that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures? So verse 3, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, he was raised according to the Scriptures. And then out of that, two more things happened as a result. So first he died... 
And so he was buried. He wouldn't have been buried unless he died. Secondly, he was raised, and so then he, then he appeared. And he wouldn't have appeared unless he had been raised. But notice that all the emphasis here is on the appearing. Look at it again from verse 3. He died. Verse 4, was buried, was raised. Verse 5, appeared. Verse 6, appeared. Verse 7, appeared. Verse 8, appeared. Died, was buried, was raised. Appeared, 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 appeared. And the emphasis, notice here, is, is on his appearing as a resurrected person. There's no doubt that there's a, a big emphasis here, isn't there, on the resurrection appearances of Jesus because he's appeared to lots of different people at a number of different times and then mostly people who are still alive. Now, first, there's the Apostle Peter. They say, call him Cephas there. And the Apostle Peter and James, the great Jerusalem leaders, there, there are two, those two are still alive as well as the other apostles by the time that he writes this letter. There's also a great group of 500 people. Most of them are still alive. We're only 25 years on from the events of Jesus' death. And there are plenty of people still alive who had seen the risen Jesus. There's no question at all that Paul is saying that the bodily resurrection of Jesus really did happen. It's a fact that could be checked. You could go to people who would say, yes, I saw him. Multiple living witnesses. Notice that Christianity is unashamedly based on historical events. The death and resurrection of Jesus happened and people were there to see them, to witness them, so that other people like you and me who weren't there to see them could know that they had happened. And it's not just that they were people who saw things. It's, it's actually even more sophisticated than that because it was in accordance with the scriptures, we're told. You see, the, the big things that God does, he announces in advance that he's going to do them. He says what's going to happen and then, then why it's going to happen and then he makes it happen and then he provides people to witness it happening. And so that's why Paul uses these words according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, he was raised to a life according to the scriptures. And so long before it happened, God had actually already told us in the Bible that somebody was going to come and die for sins and rise again. And so God wants all people in every age to know that he, that he has done what is required to deliver us from our sins and their dreadful consequences. And so God loves us. He loves us so much that he didn't think it was too great a price to have his own son die on a cross in our place so that you and I, we could be saved. And we can be sure that the death and resurrection of Jesus really did happen, and it was for us. What a marvellously open and transparent way of doing things. We don't have a God who kind of wants people to be ignorant or confused about what he's done. He's not playing hard to get with us. If you search really hard, maybe you'll find me. No, he's not doing that. And God says what he's going to do, and then he does it, and he makes sure that there's people around who know the fact that it has happened. It's right there for everyone to see. And so let me just say that if you're a person here this morning who is just beginning to check out the Christian message for yourself, it's great that you're here. Let me encourage you to take heart because it is a big thing that you're looking into and it does have big implications. 
But God does not expect us to take big steps in life blindly or foolishly or without reason. That's not the way he works. And isn't that a relief? And if you're looking for real hope, then there's no better place to look than the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. See, that's the big thing that here is, is announced in advance. He did it. He's made sure that people there to see it. And here is, what Paul, but here is what Paul is concerned about as he comes to the church in Corinth. He's concerned that they, not that they denied that Jesus was raised to life because they believed that, but they were denying that anybody else would be raised to life again. Here's the problem in Corinth. And as a result, the behaviour of the Christians in Corinth looked like resurrection-denying behaviour. They were living for now, living for things of this world, indulging in sin. If Christians aren't raised from death bodily, then this world is all we've got to live for. And that was precisely the error the Corinthians were making. They were in danger of denying the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus. Now, some believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, but then believe that we won't be. And Paul's saying, well, hang on a minute. You need to have a think about your logic because life without the resurrection is actually futile. And so in verses 12 to 19 there of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he plays out the hypothetical so that they and we can see the outcomes. And so let's just have a, have, have a quick look at it together. Siri says there in verse 12, he says, hang on. Verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What are the outcomes of their thinking? So verse 13, he said, okay, what are the outcomes? If there's no resurrection of the dead, what does that mean? Well, verse 13, not even Christ has been raised. Uh, Or it means our preaching is in vain or futile. Verse 14, it means your faith is in vain. Verse 15, not only that, it means that we're misrepresenting God. And of course, verse 17, it means you're still in your sins. And then in verse 18, it also means that those who have already died in Christ have perished without hope. And then finally, in verse 19, that we, as Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. See, if there is no resurrection from the dead, it's all meaningless, Paul says. If this world is all there is, if death places a kind of an emphatic full stop at the end of all of our strivings, if there's no resurrection, brilliant. No, 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 if there's no resurrection, not brilliant, but that's brilliant. (laughs) No resurrection, we're in trouble, right? And I should sit down. Thank you, Josh. You might have resurrected my voice. Uh, But if there is no resurrection, meaningless. Paul's preaching is in vain. He's saying our faith is futile. We're still in our sins, the dead have perished, and we have no hope either for now or the future. That is a pretty sad place to be in. But if it was true, sorry, if that was true, that the gospel is hollow, that Jesus is a fraud, then anyone, as Paul says, anyone is better off than a Christian. And so Paul is saying here, in fact, that his whole life has been a waste of time if there is no such thing as resurrection. Uh, Listen to this quote from David Pryor. I think it's going to be there on the screen. There you go. He says, Take out the resurrection of Jesus, and there is nothing left on which to rest faith, only the decomposing corpse of an itinerant Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. You know, sobering words, aren't they? If there's no resurrection, then death is not just the last enemy, as verse 26 suggests. It is the one invincible terror 
life without resurrection would indeed be futile. We've already uh, touched on how our future hope shapes our present actions, and Paul actually understands that here as well. In, In verse 32, which is a little bit beyond what we read, if you've got a Bible there you can see it, he quotes the motto of those who have no hope of resurrection. That is, the motto they live by, you can see there in verse 32b, he says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It makes sense, doesn't it? Why would you live any other way if this is all there is? If you have no hope for the future, then make the most of now. And can I say, sadly, that is the motto of many people living here in Sydney today. Many people are living with a moral and personal recklessness with little regard for the consequences of their actions to themselves or to others. For others, there's no hope beyond a comfortable and perhaps indulgent uh, retirement, a retirement that there's no guarantee will even survive to experience. Frank Sinatra was perhaps the classic self-made man, successful, talented, had it all. But at his death, there was a great sense of loss. Not that there isn't always a sense of loss at death. Of course there is. But Frank's own dying words were these, I'm losing. But here is Paul's point in verse 20. The fact is that 2,000 years ago, a man died and he was raised again to life so that we too might be raised from death to life. Jesus turns, I'm losing, into for me, to die is gain. See, for, for the Christian, the other side of death is better than this side. And if verse 32 is the motto of the world, then verse 20 is the motto of the church. Notice what he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, in the next verses, Paul draws his readers' attention to the reason for our death and the reason for our future resurrection. And he speaks of two men and two destinies. Let me see if I can just get through this quickly for you, but I think it's important. Look at what he says from verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive." But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice here Paul says quite plainly that death itself came by a man. He identifies that man as Adam, as in Adam and Eve, right at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, for as in Adam all die. Uh, Human beings are the crowning glory of God's creative work. We're told right at the very beginning of the story of life in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that God has created us to enjoy a unique and wonderful relationship with him. Death is not even in the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 at the beginning of the Bible, only life and relationship in the paradise that God had created. But the account moves very sadly from the heights of God's magnificent creation to the depths of man's sinful rebellion against his creator in Genesis 3. And so Adam, along with Eve, sin against God. And the result, we're told, is death. 
You know, not immediate, but death is etched into the fabric of life as the penalty for our sin. By birth, we are essentially descendants of Adam. We're in him, Paul says. And therefore, inevitably, we join him in his sin and we're faced with the same penalty that is death and God's judgment. All of us by birth are united to Adam and therefore are destined for death and judgment. But that is only the first part of the story, notice. Death, death has entered the world through a man, but there's another man who brings resurrection from the dead. See verse 22? So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, if the penalty of, de- of sin is death in Adam, then the point of chapter 15 verse 3 is that Christ has died for our sins. And if death is the penalty for sin, then life is the evidence of no sin. Jesus' resurrection is the evidence that not only is he without sin, but also that the sins of the world, our sins, that he took to the cross have also been forgiven. Have a listen to the way Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, chapter 4, verse 25. But God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, Jesus actually dealt with our Adam problem. And his resurrection is evidence that those who are in Christ have a restored relationship with God and will in turn be raised to life as Christ was. And so Christ is actually the first fruits, he says, but we will follow him. You know, the first fruits, you might be aware, are the, the guarantee of all that is to come. Like the first fruit to uh, appear on the trees of what will be a great harvest. And it's important to be clear about whom Paul is talking about here, because when he says that all will be made alive, in verse 22, he's not referring to all people everywhere in this instance. He actually qualifies those who will be made alive by identifying them as those who are in Christ, as opposed to being in Adam. Let me see if I can explain. Every human being lines up behind one of two men. Either they are in Adam or they are in Christ. By virtue of birth, we all start in Adam's line, the line of sin and death. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, we are given the opportunity to leave Adam's line and to line up behind Christ, the line of forgiveness and life. See, those in Christ's line are in Christ. They're the ones that Paul is referring particularly to here. Now, elsewhere in the Bible speaks of the resurrection of all people, no matter uh, what line they're in. But those who remain in Adam's line have not been forgiven and have not had their penalty for sin dealt with. And so Christ begins a new humanity and his resurrection marks the beginning of this new creation. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes another one in chapter 5, verse 17, he makes it clear if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're in Christ and your destiny is wrapped up in him, you have eternal life. Now, before I conclude, in in verses 24 to 26, Paul speaks about the time of our future resurrection. That is the end of this world. And he reminds us that even our resurrection is tied up with something much bigger, and that is the coming of God's eternal kingdom. Now is the time of salvation, the Bible tells us. Now is the time for the enemies of God to accept the peace that he's offering. 
But the time will come when all those who stand opposed to God will have to face him as their judge. See, Paul wants the Corinthians not to misunderstand or even deny Christ's resurrection. The gospel is not the death of Jesus for our sins. It is that, plus the resurrection for our future life. And so no matter how or when our bodies die, we have the certainty that we will be raised from the dead with a new eternal body. When you line up behind Jesus, you really do get to live twice. See, these are our spare bodies. Christians are going to get new bodies. And Jesus' death and resurrection is the antidote to our sin. Along with that is the great hope that it instills in us for the future. You see, the resurrection actually fulfills that universal human need for hope. As Christ has been raised, so too will we be raised to life again on the last day. We can actually be confident of our own resurrection because Christ himself has already been raised and his resurrection guarantees ours. Jesus isn't dead, he's alive right now. We, we serve a living saviour, not a dead one. In fact, Christianity is a personal relationship with our risen Lord. So verse 20 is the Christian motto, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 22, so also those in Christ shall all be made alive. We, you know, we rightly see death as a terrible thing. We get angry at death. We somehow know that it wasn't meant to be like this. When the memories of loved ones will again be evoked this coming Anzac Day, you know, lives of great promise unfulfilled by the futility of war. If there were no resurrection, we would have nothing whatsoever to offer. But the fact is that Christ has indeed been raised. The gospel is a word of comfort and real hope in the face of death. Howard Guinness was the founder of the Sydney University Evangelical Union. He was a great Christian man who had furthered the, the good news of Jesus in our city by his unswerving devotion to telling people about Jesus. When he was dying on his deathbed, a friend came to see him. And as was his custom, he asked Howard Guinness the question, are you at peace with God? And Howard Guinness's response was emphatic. No, he said. I have joy unspeakable and am full of glory. I mean, what a response in the face of death. What confidence in his future. The Lord he had served wholeheartedly in life, he continued to trust unswervingly in the face of death. See, here is the confident hope that we have, not only for ourselves but to offer to others. If there's no resurrection, the best we can say to someone on their deathbed is, you've had a good life, and that is if they have had. But at best, it's completely hollow. Life without resurrection is futile. However, when you speak to a Christian like Howard Guinness on their deathbed, we don't have to point back to their past. Instead, we can say with great confidence, you've got a great life ahead. Life with the fact of resurrection is fantastic. Here is our great hope. At death, we will never be more alive. And so when you hear that old Rod Cocking has died, remember that I'll be more alive than I am right now. I'll just be getting started on my second life. 
Why don't we pray? Our gracious and loving God, we give you great thanks for all that you have done to bring us into relationship with you, to have our sins forgiven, to know that we have the gift of eternal life. Thank you that you raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And in doing that, Father, he was the first fruits of those who would follow him. Thank you that we can be secure, that we have hope, that we know, Lord God, with great certainty, that we too will be raised because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we give you great thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen.